Well, today we're beginning a new preaching series as we move into uh, the time in the historical church calendar called Lent, which has been a time for the church through the ages um, to call one another to search our hearts. It's a time, it's a call to repentance. It's a time to get really, really honest about our sin and the depths of our need of the grace of Christ, so that, for the reason of not just to see our sin, but so that we long for Easter. Lent is the 40 days that lead up to Easter, and at Easter we celebrate as a people all that Christ has come to do, but Lent teaches us to long for Easter, to long for cross, to long for redemption. And so in our series, that's what we're going to be entering into together. So I was thinking about this uh, idea of becoming honest and looking at uh, the reality of our hearts. It made me think about a recent story of what happened with uh, my boys. One of the things my two oldest boys, Hutchinson and Wynn, love to do is they love to play in Daddy's big truck. That's what they call it, Daddy's big truck. If you've seen my truck, it's not big. I wish it were. I like to act like it is with my kids because they're fools, but it's not a big truck. But they love to play in my truck, and one day they were in the cab of the truck, and I was working in the yard, and I came up, and I said, all right, boys, time, time to get out. And I noticed Wynn, who is, of my boys, is the one that's the most mischievous. He is, uh, he's sneaky. He's always teaching his older brother stuff. And the thing, the saving grace for Wynn is he's got this smile that whenever you're just about to bust him, you see that smile and you just, you just melt. Well, I come in and I notice Wynn was up to something in the truck. And I noticed that he was putting pennies in my CD player. The CD player, just, it just had a row of pennies in it. And I'm like, Wynn, what are you doing? So I, I pulled him out, you know. And I thought, well, well, maybe nothing got inside. Maybe we're okay, all right? So I didn't think anything about it. And then about a week later, I'm going down the road, and my CD player quit. And I'm like, oh. And so I started to notice whenever I would turn or hit a bump, I could hear chains rattling. <laughs> so my hopes that it was just external, they just weren't going to come to pass. So, so I thought to myself, okay, all right, I can deal without a CD player, you know, CDs are kind of out of style, and, you know, that's, that's okay now. i still got my radio. Uh, who knows what it would cost to get this thing fixed? I just, I just deal with it. I won't worry about it. Well, then about a week after that, my radio went out. And if you've ever driven in silence, it's very, very hard to do. And so I thought, ah, oh, this, this is a bigger problem here. But still, this is okay. I can deal with this. No big deal. You know, if I took this to the dealership, I'd have to buy a new truck, you know. <laughs> I can deal with this, you know. I've got a, an iPhone, you know. I can play music on that, so everything will be okay. Well, everything was going great till a week later, my gas gauge went out. I said, ooh, okay, that's something else. Uh, I can deal with this, too. I'll start counting miles, so I'll know whenever I get towards empty, and everything will be okay. Then the lights on my dash went out. <laughs> Whoo, this, is, this problem is growing and spreading. But still, I can deal with it because 
if I, I mean, who would I take it to? And who could fix it? And what would it possibly cost? I can deal with this. It's okay. I got a dome light. You know, I can cut that on if I need to see something. A week after that, my heater went out. And it's getting cold. And so I was like, okay, no problem. I can bundle up. I just put a lot of clothes on. And uh, I can still deal with this and cope with it, even though it's getting bigger. Well, then a week after that, Ashley and I were going on a date one evening, and we're both bundled up. And (laughs) we're downtown, and a car pulls up next to us, and he's like, roll down the window. So we roll down the window, and he says, you have no exterior lights on your car. There's no taillights or anything. And we're like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to get a ticket down here. I'm going to get pulled over. This problem is too big now. It's grown too big. i got to do something about it. Do you know the silliest thing about my avoiding it and not dealing with it and trying to cope with it? You know what the silliest thing about it is? I have the greatest mechanic in the world, Connie Bradford. Has anybody ever been to see Connie Bradford? This guy is a miracle worker. I mean, he is... He's, uh, he's the epitome of a shade tree mechanic, like his shop's underneath about a 200-year-old oak tree. He's got cars all over the place. He's country as the day is long. His accent, I have trouble with it. I, <laughs> I have to really concentrate. I'm from Chickamauga, you know, so I'm like, oh, what did he say? And he can fix anything. The most foolish thing about my avoiding of it and coping with it and all that stuff is he can fix it like that. Why was I avoiding him? I didn't want to put him out. I thought of all the trouble of taking it out there, and my goodness, what could this possibly cost? But you know what happened? Finally, whenever I couldn't handle it on my own, I took it to Connie. He fixed it. it took him about three days. Had to replace everything, take it all apart. He had to get to the inside of it. The problem was all the way down in the heart of it. But he fixed it. And I said, Connie, what do I owe you? And he said, $80. And I about fell over. And I thought, why? Why did I avoid it? Why did I try to deal with it? Why didn't I just go to him? How foolish was that? I think that is a great picture of what we do in our relationship with God. We see sin in our life. We see all of the ways that we fall so far short of who he is and we just try to deal with it. We just try to cope with it. It's not that bad. It's okay. I can get over this. It's just this one little thing. And we avoid going to the one who can fix it all. Don't we always do this? Isn't that our immediate reaction to our sin? Not to run to Him, but rather to try to cope and deal with it on our own. What we're going to see in our passage is Jesus says, You know what I want? I want your honesty. I want you to come to me with open hands and come to me continually for grace. That's what he's after in our life. That's what we'll see in our passage. So let's look at Matthew 15. As we come to this story, this really testy encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees, which, by the way, was happening all the time, Jesus, whenever he spoke to those who were most broken, was warm and tender and patient. But to the self-righteous, he was strong in his words. And one of the most, 
ironic things about Jesus' ministry and His life is that the people that you would have expected to respond to Him with faith that would have acknowledged Him as King and Messiah would have been the religious people. It would have been the teachers. I mean, for goodness sakes, they had the Word. They were always studying and teaching God's Word, the Word that spoke about Him. And so you would have expected, once Jesus comes, for them to embrace Him. But just the opposite happens. They were threatened by Him. And they resisted Him and they opposed Him. They were always trying to catch Him in a trap. Always trying to trick Him with words. And, And even possibly more ironic is the people that you would have expected to avoid Him, the people that had really made a mess of their lives had sin all over, visible sin all over their lives, they responded to him in droves. And so what we see in our passage here is that right off in verse 1, Matthew says that these Pharisees and teachers of the law have come all the way from Jerusalem to ask Jesus a question. Now, Jesus right now is in Galilee, and so that's a, that's a pretty hefty journey that they've made to ask this question, but it's not really a question. It's an accusation. It's veiled as a question. Kind of looks like it on the outside. Hey, we're inquiring of you. But it's an accusation. And look at what they say to him. Hey, we're just curious. We just noticed something. Can, can we say something here? Just want to share some truth with you. Uh, we notice your disciples. Why, why is it that they break the tradition of the elders? Just curious. They don't wash their hands before they eat. What's wrong with them? He's making an accusation against Jesus. So what, are the, what is this tradition of the elders that they're talking about? Well, they're referring to an entire body of rabbinical te- teaching. Things like the Mishnah and the Talmud. All of these teachings that were attempted to be an application of Scripture. And so throughout the centuries, what these religious teachers would do is they would say, okay, you got your word here, you got your law here. Now let's expand on that a little bit and let's kind of parse out all of the areas that that would apply so that we make sure in keeping this over here, you don't get anywhere near to breaking these commandments here. So it seems like a very good and religious thing to do. Hey, we've got tons of laws. We're writing laws all the time. And even on this issue of washing before you eat, in God's law, He called His people to be pure, to be set apart from the world. So the rabbinical teacher said, okay, well, one application of this is you can't eat with dirty hands. And so they had an entire essays that parsed out every little detail of going through a washing before you ate, how much water to use, how many times to wash it, all of this stuff. And what does Jesus respond to with them? He responds with a question of his own. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? It's kind of a trump card, right? Why is it, let me ask you a question, why is it that for the sake of your tradition, you break God's law? That's the real issue. And then he goes on. For God said, honor your father and mother. That's the fifth commandment. One of the fundamental ways that it was understood that the fifth commandment was to be applied is in the way that one cares for their parents in older age. 
So Jesus refers to the fifth commandment. He says, but you say in your teaching that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. This is what he's talking about here. Another thing in that... uh, in all of those teachings and traditions of the elders, another thing in there was that, you know, if you got to the end of your life, or if your folks got to the end of their life, uh, you had an option, an alternative to actually caring for them. You could kind of sit down and figure out all that it would cost you to take care of them from the, in their older age. And then you could take all of that money and you could make a gift to the temple, okay? And so that was seen as a very religious thing to do. I mean, Look at this, you're making a huge gift to the Lord. Wow, you must be so holy and righteous. But you see, it was just a way of avoiding the true matter of the law, which was to love and to honor your parents. And so they find a way around God's law, that through giving this gift, they would be off the hook. That's Jesus' accusation of them. So what's the problem? in their whole religious approach to God. Jesus goes on in verse 7. Second part of verse 6. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Look at verse 7. You hypocrites. He called them that all the time. This word hypocrite was taken from the theater. Uh, It was taken from the play. It was referred to one who is an actor who is playing a part, who is appearing to be something that they're not. And essentially, says Jesus, that's exactly what you're doing. You're appearing to be religious. Your talk is religious. The things that you do are very showy and religious. But it's just fake. Look at what he says as he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah was right about you. Isn't that great? I mean, these are guys that are teachers of the law, teachers of the Word, and he said... You remember what Isaiah said? He was saying it about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the issue here. The problem with the whole approach of the Pharisees is that it was just lip service. It was just external. All of it was just external. And their hearts were far from God. It didn't look that way. I mean, look how devoted they were. Look at how hard they worked. Look at all of the laws that they kept. They were always talking about the Bible. But the problem was their hearts. Their hearts were far from Him. They weren't dependent upon Him. They weren't looking to Him. They weren't relying upon His mercy alone. They were relying on themselves and their own goodness. Their religion was actually and ironically a way of avoiding God as Savior. Flannery O'Connor in one of her novels speaks of a character that in the basic approach to life was seeking to avoid sin so that they could avoid Jesus. That's a profound insight. How often do we seek to avoid sin? Not out of worship to God, but rather... To avoid Jesus. Because to come to Him all over again, empty-handed, well, that's something we don't want to do. Moses warned against this, what the Pharisees were doing. In Deuteronomy 4, 
In Deuteronomy 4, he says, as he gives the law to Israel, he says, now be careful. Now, why would you say be careful unless you knew it was their tendency to do this? Be careful not to add to or to take away from this law that I'm giving to you. You see, he knows our tendency. Our tendency is to come to God's law and to pick and choose, right? Say, well, these, oh, no, no, those are good laws. And typically, they're the ones that are easier for us to keep, maybe by our disposition. So we say, yeah, that's good. That's good right there. But those, I need to write some new laws to cancel these out. You see, that's what they were doing. They were coming up with ways to actually avoid keeping God's law. Their entire problem was that their externalism and way about going towards God was actually a way of avoiding Him. But look at what Jesus says in His teaching as He moves on. Jesus, verse 10, Jesus called the crowd to Him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. That's what the Pharisees were saying. It's what comes in that makes you morally unclean. But it's what comes out of the mouth that makes him unclean. Well, luckily Peter says, uh, I don't get it. It's not quite clear. I'm very glad he asked that. So Jesus explains. Verse 17. Okay, he explains it. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and out of the body? So he's referring to what the Pharisees were teaching. He said, don't you know that whatever's external that you put into your mouth, if it's clean or dirty, well, it, it doesn't affect the heart. You know, I mean, just think logically. I mean, how can something you eat morally change your heart? It doesn't. It doesn't work that way. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. What's he talking about here? What comes out of the mouth? Words. It's our words. The Scriptures have a great deal to say about our words. The Scriptures give us the sense that words are powerful. Words can kill. You know, as a child, I remember saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's helpful in some situations, but it's just not true. It's not true because words can kill. And not only do they cut other people apart, they also affect the ones speaking them. Because whenever you say it, you're going to feel it. And so words have this powerful um, impact upon our life. And the point that Jesus is making here is that our words reveal our hearts. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. The things that we say are a reflection of what's in our heart. And that's Jesus' point. It's out of the heart that comes murder, theft, adultery, all of these surface sins. So sins that are actions, well, they're a problem. They're significant. But if you think it's just the surface sin, you're missing the reality that Jesus is pointing us to. He's telling us that sin has its root in the heart, all the way deep on the inside. And our words are a reflection of that. Our actions flow from what is in the heart. That's what Jesus is showing here. 
So what are ways that we're like the Pharisees? What are ways in which we seek to justify our sin, to minimize the significance of it, and ultimately, what are the ways that we seek to avoid God? Well, I think two basic ways um, that we tend to do this. See if this hits home for you. One is that like the Pharisees, they wrote new laws in order to compensate for where they were breaking the real laws. I think we do that too. What are ways in which we write new laws in order to justify ourselves? Well, one way is in which we try to do good things to cancel out our sin. Has this ever happened to you? For me, it's almost automatic. Whenever I blow it, all of a sudden in my mind, I begin building a strategy of what I can do to cancel out for it, right? So you've, you've sinned, and immediately in my mind, I begin saying, okay, all right, I got to show God I'm serious this time. I'm going to, oh, I'm going to have a long, quiet time. I'm going to pray a lot. I'm going to do something good to somebody else. You know, we start to form a strategy. You know what that's called? It's called penance. Penance is a Latin word meaning satisfaction. What we're trying to do whenever we're doing that is we're trying to satisfy our own sin. It's a way of writing new laws to compensate. What are some other ways? Well, a lot of times we're adopting strategies in different areas of our life. Good strategies that we elevate to ethical status. Here's what I mean by that. There's all kinds of different strategies and ways of going about things and things like the way that you raise your family, the ways that you handle your finances, the way that you do church. There's all these different strategies that we tend to attach ourselves to and say, okay, now this is it right here. This is how it's got to be. And so if I do it this way, then I'm right and all of those people are wrong. You know, it's like all of those strategies for child raising. I mean, there's a lot of different child raising strategies. And so we attach ourselves to those things and say, this is the right way to do it. And those ways are wrong. We're writing a new law. Other ways, this is the way that I feed my family. This is the things that I eat. Even food in our culture is becoming an opportunity for this. Because I eat this way, I am right. You see, we're just, we're just writing new laws. Or even in the church, it's my theology. It's my particular system of theology. And because I adhere to it, this makes me right. And you all wrong. Or even styles of worship. This is big, 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 big in the church right now. They call them the worship wars. And so people have a particular preference for a style of worship. You know what they do? They make it the way. So it would go something like this. If you have an organ in worship, you're not worshiping. That's just not worship. Now a guitar, now that's worship, right? That's a law. We do this stuff so automatically. Ways to compensate. Well, another way that we tend to write new laws is we tend to find some particular thing in creation and say, now, you've got to abstain from that. And by abstaining from that, not doing that, it makes you right and all of them wrong. What are some examples? Well, in our culture, the Bible Belt culture, I think we have a number of these. One is alcohol. In Scripture, alcohol and wine is seen as a gift from God. Drunkenness is a sin. Scripture is absolutely clear about that. But what happens so easily? We write a law. 
we say God forbids any use of alcohol. And so why do we do that? Well, so that I'm in and they're out. You can also do it the reverse way. You know, I have the freedom to drink, so I'm the in now. See, we can do it either way. We can do it with dancing, with cussing, with going to our movies, already movies, to watching TV, you know, all of these different ways where we write a new law and say, this is the ethical standard, I'm in and you're out. Now, is there anything wrong with abstaining from things? Not at all. In fact, there might be great wisdom in it. But the problem is whenever we elevate it as a new law, as a way to justify ourselves. And we're doing it in a myriad of different ways in our life. So that's one approach, by compensating by writing new laws. A second approach is adjusting the record by minimizing our sin. This is how we do it. You just sin, almost immediately you begin to talk to yourself and say different things. You begin to say, it's not that bad. It's okay, just this once. Well, I might do this, but, but look at what they do. We compare ourselves to one another. I'm, I might do this, yes, it's true, but I don't do that, what those people do over there. We have all of these different little strategies for minimizing our sin to say, it's not really that bad. It's not really sinfulness. In fact, we use different language, right? We say mistake. We say struggle. It's okay to say those things, but it's whenever we use that instead of sin. What are we doing? Minimizing. And oftentimes what goes along with that is we minimize God's holiness. And we say things like, God is... Is God really, is the standard really that high? I mean, after all, he's, he's just loving, right? He doesn't make any demands of us or anything. You know, He's kind of like a grandfather in the sky. He just wants you to be with Him. Well, unfortunately, it's just not true. And so we'll do both of those things. We'll minimize our sin and minimize God's holiness. The thing that all of those things have in common is that there are ways of seeking to justify our sin, and ultimately ways of avoiding Him as Savior. Avoiding being in the place where you have to come to Him and say, you are my only hope. There's nothing in me that will merit your love. It must be pure mercy. It's a resistance to go there. So maybe this is all a bit heady for you. Uh, a bit difficult to put your arms around about how this might show up in our lives. So let me give you an example, an example that Jesus uses here in our passage, our words. Our words are one of those things that it's like, that counts? I mean, sins and actions and stuff, well, we're all clear that 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 counts, but my words, really, they matter that much? They're kind of acceptable sins for us, you know. They might bother us a little bit, but they're not really sin, are they? What are some ways that we sin through our words? Gossip. We spread bad reports, you know. You hear hear something about somebody and, oh, it's just so tempting to share. In fact, Proverbs says, it goes down like sweet morsels. It tastes so good. And I know everyone has experienced that in here. It's just so hard not to share. And so Jesus says, the words come from the heart. What's in the heart? Why do you gossip? Well, 
If you're lowering someone else, you're raising yourself. It's a way of being right. It's a way of justifying yourself. What are other ways? Well, criticizing. With our, using our words to criticize, to rant and to rave and to complain and to always find something wrong with something. We use our words to do that as a practice. Why do we do that? Because we want to be the expert. If you're criticizing, you're the expert. What are some other ways? Well, we deceive. We use our words to deceive, like we fudge the record a little bit. You know, we use our words to appear to be a little bit better than we are. And we do this all the time. You know, we'll share certain things about ourselves and we'll omit certain things about ourselves so that we look better in front of others. That's sinning with our words. We're boasting. You know, boasting is kind of the opposite of, of um, what you would do in um, uh, gossip. Gossip, you're sharing a bad report about other people. Boasting is kind of sharing your own good press. You know, it's kind of talking about yourself and with your words, letting everybody know that you're, you're the best, you're the most important guy in the room. Why do we do that? To justify ourselves, to raise ourselves. And then finally, to, we use our words to tear other people down. You know, to beat people down, to put them on their level, to hurt, to punish, all of these things. Jesus says, your words... They reveal what's in the heart. That's where the root of it is. And James says, who can tame the heart? It's such a small part of the body, but it directs the whole person. Who can tame the tongue? Our words are so powerful, and they reveal our hearts. So maybe this is still hard for it to connect with you in your life. You might think, well, I don't really use that many words that are sinful. Well, let me give you an, let me give you a, a, an assignment for this week, okay? Homework assignment. So you can come back next week and we can talk about what happened. It's called the tongue assignment, okay? And so here it is. For one week, just one week, after the one week, you can go back to whatever. But for one week, do not gossip. Don't talk about other people. Don't deceive people to make them think that you're better than you are. Uh, don't criticize other people. Don't tear people apart with your words. Don't use your words to boast. And most of all, don't use your words to defend yourself. And then we'll see how it goes. Here's my hunch. Not one of us in here will make it to the car today <laughs> before we break the tongue assignment. Why is that? Because the heart, it tells the whole, the words, they tell the whole story about the heart. It exposes what's in our hearts. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees who are saying, sin is only external. If you can do some external things in your life, then you can minimize it and you're fine. In fact, this is the way to God. And Jesus is saying, external, the external flows from what's on the inside. That's where it comes from. And what God is after is people that are right and righteous and whole all the way down to the core. And so if you think that sin is only an external problem, you're only going to look for an external solution. 
But if you understand what Jesus says here and that the problem is in the heart, it will drive you away from yourself. Because the problem about the heart is that we can't fix the heart. You know, I can try to restrain my behavior. I can try to do good. I can try harder. But I can't get my hands down into my heart to change it. Only He can. And that's what Jesus' point is here. It's an internal problem. It's so much deeper than what the Pharisees sought. And so a system of religiousness can never satisfy your sin. So what is Jesus after in us? You know, you kind of get to the point where you're like, my goodness, if I'm going to look at my words, I'm shot. What do you want from me? This is what He wants. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants soft, broken, repentant hearts that say over and over and over, you're all that I've got. If I don't have your mercy, I'm shot. But the good news is, I have your mercy infinitely and forever. That's what he's after, repentance. Sometimes we think of repentance as kind of like being repentance, you know. Repentance is beating yourself up in order to pay for your sin, that's penance. It's trying to satisfy for your sin. What repentance is, it's coming back to Him. It's turning back. It's coming back and saying, I'm so indifferent to you. My heart is full of disadvantaging others to advantage myself. I need you. So true repentance is always a repentance that is resting in the gospel. And that is the only thing that frees you to really and deeply repent. Is you've got to believe in the full reality of what He has done. And so Jesus says, I don't want you to justify yourself. I don't want you to hide. I don't want you to make excuses. I don't want you to try to compensate. I want you. I want your heart. And I want you to come to me constantly. That's what He's after. Jesus, in our passage, does not immediately offer the remedy, does He? He's kind of pointing out the rabbit hole goes a lot deeper than what you think. But it's implied. It's Him. He is the solution. But the whole Gospel of Matthew is moving towards one moment. In fact, all of history before it was moving towards this one moment whenever Christ was hung on a cross... And on that cross, all, all of our sins were laid upon Him. And God counted Him as sin in our place. And He counted His righteousness to us. So that if you are united to Christ, then you are right. You are justified. And so whenever that gets real for you, you don't have to go around trying to justify yourself. You're free. You can be honest. You can say, yeah, that's true, but that's not even the half of it. If He has justified you, you don't have to justify yourself anymore. It sets you free. It sets you free to love other people. And so the point in looking honestly at our sin, the point of the season of Lent, is not just to look at our sin at all. The point is that our sin would drive us to Him. Over and over and over, because that's how we're healed. 
a Scottish pastor. His name was Robert Murray McShaney. has this great, fantastic quote. He says, For every one look at sin, take ten looks at Christ. I have found that to be more and more and more true in my life. If all you're doing is looking at your sin, you will be in despair and bondage. But if for every one look at your sin, it drives you to fix your eyes upon Him who has gone to the cross and was raised up from the grave for your justification, it will fill you with joy and it will change you. So with Connie, you know, after I leave Connie's garage from getting my truck fixed, you know, I was hoping it was an external problem. He had to go all the way into the inside of the truck. That's where the problem was. And it was growing and it was spreading into all these other places. But I had finally gone to Connie and I was driving away. You know what I was saying to myself? Why did I delay? What was I doing? I mean, I went through a lot of trouble to try to cope with it myself. And the cost, well, it was so minimal. But you know what it did to me? It makes me want to sing Connie's praises everywhere. If I hear somebody having uh, car trouble, they might not even be talking to me. There's somewhere else in the room. I'm going to come up and try to work his name in the conversation. (laughs) I'm so grateful and blown away by this Connie Bradford. I just want to talk about him all the time. Jesus is saying, you don't have to hide. I have come to take your sins away. So come to me. Don't cope. Don't justify. Don't hide. Come to me and I will heal you. And so then you can live full of joy for my glory to sing my praises. Would we, Rock Creek Fellowship, be a body of people who don't hide, who don't minimize, who aren't self-righteous, who aren't all trying to convince each other we're better than we are, would we be a people who are far more impressed by Jesus than our own resume? Would we be that kind of people? Let's pray together.